Good evening, everybody. Very good to see you all out tonight. I appreciate so much the invite, the opportunity to come and to speak. I was talking with a friend of mine just saying how many events have been canceled or postponed. It makes the ones that stick all the sweeter. So I invite you to open in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, and we'll be there in just a moment. 2 Timothy, and we'll be looking into chapter 2. I appreciate so much the theme for the summer series, The Future Christian Home. You really couldn't pick a better theme because if we want a better world, it has to start with a better home. It has to start with strong families. And so much of what we find in the Bible touches on this topic. Uh, now, I'm very aware that I've got the first lesson, sort of the intro lesson for this series. So some of the things that I'm going to get close to, I'm not going to fully explore just because I don't want to step all over someone else's material. But we're going to touch into several areas, and I want you to be aware of that as we start. The topic for tonight is teaching future generations. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about teaching the future? Well, it's spiritual education. We want to make sure that we leave the church stronger and more knowledgeable in the scriptures than we found it. If God allows that this earth would continue, if Christ doesn't return before you and I pass away, what kind of an impact will we leave on the church of tomorrow? What sort of an impact will we leave on the Christian leaders of tomorrow? Uh, you know, thinking about series like this, thinking about special events like polishing the pulpit in whatever lectureship or gospel meeting you have, who are going to be the preachers at those events 40, 60, 100 years from now? Who are going to be the Bible class teachers who rear up the young people 40, 60, 100 years from now? If we're not training them right now, they won't be there tomorrow. So what we need to do is make sure that we see the importance of teaching future generations and understand that this is the job of every Christian individual. Now, this is where we come up against a hard point because I think in the Lord's Church today, we have a lot of preachers and Bible class teachers who are pointing the finger at parents. And they're saying, well, that's not my job. The parents need to teach them in the home. And at the same time, we have a lot of parents who are pointing their finger at preachers and Bible class teachers, and they're saying, it's not my job to spiritually educate, it's you guys. It's y'all's job. Well, the truth is, it's both. You can't do it without godly parents. You can't do it without preachers and Bible class teachers. You can't do it without people surrounding the church family to all be engaged in Scripture together. Think about it. As a young person, how would you value God's Word if your parents didn't value God's Word? As a young person, how would you value the scriptures if the preacher and the Bible class teacher didn't take the time to instill in you a love for the scriptures and a love for Bible study? This is so needed, and it's needed on all sides. Now, when you come to 2 Timothy, this is a wonderful book to talk about for spiritual education. Of course, Paul writing to Timothy, and he has a lot of focuses through this book. Of course, he's requesting that Timothy would come to him before the end of his life. Paul very near the end here. And also he's giving instruction and encouragement to Timothy and by extension to all preachers and teachers. But I have to put in a word of caution here because I think, I think some Christians, when they come to 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, they say, well, that's for preachers only. Okay, it's got special application toward preachers, but this is for every member of the church. Are we foolish enough to think that every Christian man and woman doesn't need to know, don't be ashamed of God's word? This is something that is essential. And so as he's lifting up the word of God, as he's stressing the importance of spiritual education, we have to all hear this message. 
other focuses that he has through the book to rightly divide the word of truth, to look forward to the crown of righteousness, uh, that the word of God can't be bound by prison walls, that they're able to make one wise to salvation, to thoroughly equip one for every good work. This must be taught to future generations if we want the church of tomorrow to be strong. Now, in 2 Timothy, I want to draw your attention to chapter 2 and verse 2. This is so easy. Anyone can remember where this scripture is found. It's just 2, 2, 2, and you throw Timothy right in there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, for our purposes tonight, this is going to be our key verse. We're going to draw three points out of this verse. But before we do that, let me just say something sort of by way of building a deeper introduction. It is very clear from a study of the scriptures that God's will is for you and I to engage in the work of spiritual education. I think some Christians have a mistaken view that God is going to personally zap Bible knowledge into each individual, that we're waiting for divine revelation to come personally to each one, and only those who have that special divine touch are going to be those who are enlightened to know the Scripture. I know that's not the case, and anyone who picks up the Bible and reads it can know that that's not the case. Uh, One great example I like to bring up, and and just thinking about some of these classic Bible stories, in Acts chapter 8... We've got Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And you remember, we have God instructing Philip to go and join himself to that chariot. The eunuch there is reading from Isaiah. Philip is going to help him to understand that, and he's going to preach unto him Jesus. Isn't it interesting that in that chapter, God told Philip to go instead of God just directly speaking to the eunuch and explaining the scriptures? See, God's will, God's plan was for human agency. That is for Philip to go and do the preaching. What's in the next chapter? Acts chapter 9. We've got Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. There he's in personal conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember he said, why persecutest thou me? See, Saul was fighting against the very cause he thought that he was defending. But isn't it interesting, while he's in discussion, Jesus does not reveal to Saul of Tarsus what he needs to do to be saved. What does he say? Go into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. That's where Ananias is, the one that God has prepared. Because, again, it's not God's will that he would personally reveal the truth of salvation to each individual. It is that men and women, it is that Christians would carry this message. And, you know, in Acts chapter 10, it's the same story. We've got Peter and Cornelius. God is speaking to both of them. We've got things revealed to Peter, things revealed to Cornelius, but it's only so that they would be brought together. And when Peter comes, he preaches the truth of the gospel. Cornelius and his household, they obey, and they're baptized. It's a beautiful picture. Now, what happens when you and I ignore that today? We sit by and we pray that the Lord would add to the church, that the church would grow, and we don't do anything. God's not going to give the increase if we don't plant in water. His will very clearly is for human agency, and so this work of spiritual education, the work of teaching future generations, that's for every one of us. Now, like we said earlier, this maybe has special application toward preachers and Bible class teachers, but it is the job of every Christian to be engaged here. So looking at our key verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, the first point that we might make, future generations need to hear the truth. And you can see this at the beginning of verse 2. Paul says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Future generations don't need to hear fluffy pep talks. Future generations don't need to hear watered-down sermons that could be presented in any denominational group anywhere across America. Future generations need to hear the truth. 
They need to hear the teaching of the Bible. Now, it must be taught in love. Otherwise, it's not the truth, right? Because you can't separate love and doctrine. Those go hand in hand. But what Paul instructs Timothy to teach is the same things that Timothy heard from Paul. Now, what was Paul preaching? He made that very clear. It wasn't his own message, not what originated with him, not his own ideas. It is that which was revealed by Christ Jesus. It was the doctrine of Christ, the message of truth. So when you and I are focusing on spiritual education and what the church of tomorrow needs to hear, it better not be our opinions. It better not be the traditions of some group. And we don't want future generations looking to say, well, this is what John taught, so it's right. Or this is what some other preacher taught, so it's right. They need to say, this is the word of God, so it's right. This is what comes from that ultimate source, the source of truth, that which is righteousness. Now, when you think about the emphasis that Paul places on truth, it's found throughout this book. Uh, In 2 Timothy, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 13, what does he have to say there? He instructs Timothy to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. To hold fast to that pattern is to maintain to that form of faithfulness, that which is once and for all delivered, that which must be defended. He's to hold fast to that pattern of words, and notice how they're called sound words. You know, we use that word a lot. We'll talk about different congregations, and we say, well, is there a a sound church in the area? What does that mean? Well, sound doctrine, more literally, is healthy doctrine, that which has benefit for our spiritual health. And this draws closer to this point that future generations need to hear the truth, because if we're teaching something other than the truth, we are fighting their health. We're bringing sickness and corruption into the family, and that should never be something that you and I are involved in. We want to promote health, and so the only way to do that is to preach the truth. If you look at chapter 3 of this book, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10, there we have another instruction. Paul tells Timothy to carefully follow his doctrine, his manner of life, his purpose, his faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. We'll get into this a little bit further on in the lesson, but it's not just the preaching of this message, it is the living of this message. Notice how Paul stresses two main things there, to follow the doctrine and to follow his manner of life. Uh, So that is, we're going to preach the truth and we're going to live the truth. You've heard preachers talk about this before, the sermon that you live. Day by day, the actions that you take, the choices you make, that declares a message. And we're either declaring dependence on God and the truth of his word, or else we're declaring Christian hypocrisy, uh, which is the number one reason people fall away from the church. They look at some Christian who's a hypocrite, and they excuse themselves from the service. Uh, We have to make sure that the truth is lived. And then additionally, in chapter 3, if you look at verse 14, he says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Uh, Again, the emphasis is this, that the message comes from God. It originates from on high. Uh, And so that which you have learned from God, that's what needs to be delivered. Uh, You know, the idea of hearing the truth, sometimes the truth is challenging. Sometimes the truth at first seems too difficult or seems unpleasant. And so we have maybe the temptation to weasel out of it, to water it down, to sidestep it. Uh, I've heard people say alarming things like, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but I feel... And it doesn't matter how you finish that sentence, it's a bad thing to say. God's Word is our only standard of authority in religion, and we have to make sure that we are totally consistent with that principle. Now, it's difficult in application. Do we sometimes avoid 
uncomfortable topics? Do we sometimes avoid topics that we know are going to be controversial? You have to stop and ask, if we're only preaching on the things that we all agree on and are doing right, why are we preaching? Why aren't we speaking to those areas where we have difficulty? Why aren't we speaking to those areas where we have trouble? You know, that's the way the Bible talks about it, that you would examine yourself against the standard of God's Word, and then where there's a mismatch, where we're not matching God's Word, we have to change our lives. What does that take? It takes that we would preach the whole counsel of God. We can't leave anything out. And do you really think the world is going to show the same restraint to avoid controversial topics? Does the world show much restraint at all or ability to blush? Certainly not. This is why we have to be so bold to proclaim the truth and to speak that truth in love because there's so much false teaching out there. And so the first most basic but essential step, future generations need to hear the truth. Now, let's come back to our key verse here, 2 Timothy 2.2. Our second point is that future generations need to live faithfully. And look right there in the middle of the verse. He says, commit these to faithful men. Uh, The things that Timothy heard Paul preach, that message which originates from God, it is to be committed, but committed to who? To those who are faithful. And this shows us that there is responsibility on both sides. When we talk about the future Christian home, when we talk about teaching future generations, you need willing teachers and also willing students. Those who will take that which they have heard and then put it into practice to live faithfully. It is so sad, but I know some who have been amazing parents who have instructed their kids in every right way of God's truth. And then when those children grew up and left the home, they decided to live wicked, sinful lifestyles. In that situation, it is not the failure of the parent. It is the failure of the child to make the faith their own, to personally commit themselves, to be personally invested, and to be devoted to righteousness. The old saying is true, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And sometimes when you have someone who is faithful only while they're at home, that's the problem. They're not living faithfully, they're living on mommy and daddy faith. There is no room in the church of God for riding the coattails. You cannot ride someone's coattails into heaven, you cannot borrow from their faithful service and add it to your own. So Paul says to Timothy, commit these, the words of truth, to faithful men. The word for commit that we find here in 2 Timothy 2.2 is an interesting word. Here, commit means to place something into another's keeping with complete trust in them. Now, this trust implies that we have to give up a certain measure of control. And especially as we think about the greater point here, teaching future generations, we have to be willing to let them take the reins a little bit. Now, this isn't so that they can invent doctrine. This isn't so that they can change church practices. No, not at all. But they need to be able to live out their faith in order to make it their own. And so when we have young men who put on Christ in baptism, we need to start training them to lead prayers before the assembly. We need to start training them to serve on the table. When we've got young ladies who obey the gospel, we need to start training them to teach in children's Bible classes. We need to start training them to speak to their friends about the truth of the gospel. If we're not plugging them into the work, shame on us for saying, why are they going astray? They were never a part of it to begin with. And so they have to be given an opportunity to live faithfully. Now, I know we all have someone that we can think of where we just wish we could take control of their life. But you can't make someone's decisions for them not day by day, not consistently through their life. They have to make the faith their own. 
And it's so great that we would find this here in 2 Timothy because Paul and Timothy's relationship, I think, really showed this principle. If you back up a little bit in our writing here, go to 2 Timothy and chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 3 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're looking at verse 3 to verse 5 where Paul talks about Timothy's past a little bit. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Okay, now notice this with me. Timothy was blessed to have a godly mother and grandmother. But that blessing would mean nothing if Timothy never made the faith his own. And you can see here that he truly did make it his own. Look at verse 5. There's a couple of things I want to note. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. When Paul talked about Timothy's faith, he didn't refer to it as his mother's faith or his grandmother's faith. Yes, it originated there with their faiths, but it is in Timothy because it is his. And we would do well to remind ourselves here what faith really is. In the Bible, in the New Testament, faith is belief. It is the confident conviction that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that his word is truth, and that faith is always evidenced by actions of obedience. And you can see that towards the end of verse 5 as well. He says, your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Now stop and ask yourself the question, how was Paul persuaded or how was he so confident that this faith was in Timothy? It's because he had seen Timothy's decision-making. He had seen Timothy's sacrifice for the truth of the gospel. He had seen the work, the labor that Timothy put in. He wasn't one who was going to merely talk the talk. He was going to walk the walk. He was going to live out his faith and make sure that it was shown. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We are stewards of the word of God. We are stewards in the kingdom, in the church, and it's necessary that we would be found faithful, that we would be living out that faith. But, you know, as we talk about teaching future generations, we need to remember there is a natural growth process that happens. And this is the growth that we go through as we develop, as we mature in our spiritual thinking. Uh, you know, you might think about passages like Luke 2.52, describing a young Jesus. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And the idea of having favor, uh, we're talking about what is pleasing. When we first begin with just an inkling of an understanding about spiritual truth, we start out living faithfully so that we won't be punished. Uh, you know, that's the most basic step. It's an immature point, but it's a starting point. And whether we're talking about upsetting mom and dad and they're going to punish us in some way, or whether we're talking about the wrath of God, where he is just to punish evil and wickedness, we begin from this point. We say, my faithfulness means I'm not punished, so therefore I'll be faithful. But it doesn't stop there. We continue to grow. We continue to learn and to appreciate what righteousness is. And so maybe the next step on this growth maturity process, I'll be faithful so that I can please man. And maybe it's pleasing mom and dad, or maybe it's pleasing your grandmother. Maybe it's pleasing your Bible class teachers and your preacher, and maybe just some mentors that you look up to, people that you appreciate, that impact on your life. So when you're faced with a hard decision, you say, well, I have to choose this 
Because if I don't, uh, I will upset my dear loved one, my family member. And so faithfulness means I please man, therefore I'll be faithful. Uh, And of course, you know where we're going from this, the third step along this way, as we're really getting mature now, as we're developing, we say faithfulness means I please God. And that's more important than pleasing man. That's more important than fear of punishment. This is where we need to be and where we have a proper view of God. We choose faithfulness because we want to show our love for God. You know, one of the most beautiful things, and this is an often overlooked blessing, God has given us free will. He's not created us as robots. He's not created us as uh, totally determined figures that don't have any volition. No, we have free will, and that gives us the ability to show love. That gives us the ability to choose. You could not truly obey were it not for free will. Uh, Obedience means nothing when there's no alternative. Uh, And so here we reach that point where we say, I will obey because faithfulness pleases God, and that's what I want to do. Uh, and then the last one I'll mention in this list, and it's really tied in with pleasing God, we want to align our thinking so much to the scriptures that we would say, faithfulness pleases me, uh, right? Where that's what we want. We want righteous living, and we have a desire for what is truth. We have a desire for what is sound, healthy, beneficial, as far as the doctrine which comes from God's word. Think about the way David said it in the Psalms. He said, I hate every false way. That's where we want our heart. That's where we want our thinking aligned with God's so that we say what pleases God pleases me. And so therefore I will be faithful. That's what it is to be personally invested. But so often I think we show a misunderstanding of this principle. When we talk about teaching future generations, we don't require that they live faithfully. What we do a lot of times in the church today, especially when a young person obeys the gospel, we do what I refer to as the false sigh of relief. And it goes something like this. The young person submits to baptism, and we give out a big sigh, and we say they're done now. They're finished. Isn't that a foolish way of looking at it? One who is baptized has not finished. They have merely signed up to be added by the Lord to his church to begin their work. And we can't have a hands-off approach from that point. When they obey the gospel, that's where we really need to be there for them, to strengthen them, to encourage them, because don't you know that's where Satan wants to get them most of all. They've made the decision now to give their life over to Christ, to serve the cause of the kingdom, and the devil is furious about that. We need to be there to encourage them, and like we said earlier, to plug them into the work, to give them these opportunities. So when we're teaching future generations, it's not just that they would hear the truth, it's also that they would live faithfully. Uh, now, number three, coming back to our key verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, and this is my favorite point to talk about. So first, we said future generations need to hear the truth. Second, we said future generations need to live faithfully. And now, number three, future generations need to teach others. Look at the last part of our key verse here, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, uh, it says, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, the word for able that we find here is a word meaning sufficient. Uh, So one who is sufficient or who is competent, they are fit for the task. We want future generations to be fit for the task of teaching others because this is the God-designed, God-approved plan for the spread of the truth, for the spread of the gospel. Like we showed looking at Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10, it is human agency. It is God's will that Christians, men and women, would carry this word into all the world. 
Uh, you may have seen different graphics or charts that are used to depict this, uh, but basically the idea of what is uh, contagious, what is spreading, and maybe especially in today's world that's so fearful of this virus, you can use that same imaging to talk about the spread of God's word. Uh, you know, they talk now about contact tracing. And so whoever you've come in contact with, if you start to show symptoms or if you have this virus, well, everyone you've been in close contact with, they need to be checked as well. What if we looked at Christianity in that way? What if we looked at the word of truth in that way? How many people did I come in contact with today? Or how many people did I come in contact with this week? Those are all opportunities I have to share the soul-saving message of salvation. What about you? How many people did you come in contact with? How many people did you talk to, maybe from six feet or maybe closer? You had an opportunity to talk with them about Jesus, to talk with them about righteous living, to show them a better way than the chaos of sin and the disaster going on in this world, to talk about what love truly is, to talk about what obedience really is. And as we're teaching future generations, I would hope that we're not just planning to get them wet, I would hope that we're planning to plug them into the work. And so it's not just that they would hear it, not just that they would live faithfully, but that they would make other Christians themselves, that they would be a part of this work of teaching others. I think every Christian should make the personal commitment to say, God's word will not stop with me. I'm going to make sure that this message continues. And I'm so pleased, I am so joyous over the soul-saving power of Christ's blood, I couldn't possibly keep it to myself. I must share this message because of the love I have for human souls and the love I have for my God. Uh, and so we can see clearly here that the teaching of the truth, when it's lived out faithfully, must come to this point of teaching others. This emphasis is uh, really crucial throughout the Bible. Think about Matthew's account of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, from 19 and 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Amen. The idea of Christ's marching orders for the church is one that every Christian needs to take personally. And what he says very specifically here, as we're to go and teach, we are to make disciples. You know what the word disciple means? A disciple is a follower, and specifically a follower of a teacher. For the Jewish mindset in the first century, disciple was a word that carried a lot of meaning. If you were a disciple in the first century among the Jews, that means you had a rabbi, that you were chosen by him or at least allowed by him to follow in his footsteps and learn to be like him. We're not trying to make disciples of any fallible man. We're trying to make disciples of Christ. And so we're all trying to follow Christ and to learn to live like Christ lived. Well, one thing we know from the teaching of the New Testament, Jesus said, I must be about my Father's business. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, the words that I speak are not my own, but they come from my Father. Guys, if we're disciples of Jesus, we've got to be teachers of truth. We've got to be those who are carrying the words of the Father, carrying the message of the gospel into all the world. Uh, now, this is the the part where a lot of Christians excuse themselves from this aspect of the service. They say, well, others evangelize. I can't do that. Uh, first, let me caution you against saying the word can't. Uh, besides being a very negative word, it's a word that is, uh, from our own minds, limiting us. 
When we say we can't do something, we then create the circumstances possible where we will not act, where we're paralyzed by fear. Don't say that you can't and understand that God has within his church very many different people. And it is our diversity of talents, our diversity of strengths and weaknesses that makes the church so powerful. I want you to think about some of the great preachers that you've heard. Uh, Some of the great preachers that you've heard maybe 40, 50 years ago, maybe you've heard even tapes of their lessons from further back than that, uh, or maybe even read one that was written down. Did every one of those men speak the same way, use the same illustrations, reference the same verses, or talk with the same uh, speed or with the same language? No, certainly not. They all had very different skills. Now think about those who are in the world, those who are non-Christians, those who are outside the church. Are they all the same? Would they all respond the same way to the same invitation? Do they all have the same likes or the same matches with different personalities? Certainly not. Every Christian needs to realize you are unique for a reason. There are certain people that I will perhaps never be able to reach like you can. Because of my teaching style, because of my attitude, because of my personality, because of my look, whatever it is, there are some people that will respond much better to you than they will to me. And so we must all be active in this work. And, you know, even reading through the New Testament, we find a lot of different styles that are used in evangelism, a lot of different styles that are used in communicating God's Word. Let's consider a few of these together. First thing about the Apostle Paul. Now, he was an intellectual. Uh, We know that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. We know that he was very well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. And becoming a Christian, he made very wise application of these Old Testament prophecies toward Christ and to the New Covenant age. He was able to defend the finer matters of doctrine. He was ready to put down uh, the false teachers wherever he found them. And so that was one teaching style to spread the message of salvation. But, you know, there are so many other ways for Christians to be involved in the work. Think about Matthew, also called Levi in the New Testament. And one of the very few things that we read about him in Scripture, after he began to follow Jesus, he invited all of his family, friends, and neighbors into his home. And he did so not just as a blank social gathering. He invited them in for the specific purpose that they would hear the teaching of Jesus. They said, you need to come and hear That was the idea. He was a part of the communication of the truth because he opened up his home. Think about Dorcas. When we read about Dorcas in the Bible, she made clothing for people, those who were in need and especially widows. Now, after a certain amount of time passed, Dorcas died. And we read about the widows who were there holding the clothing that she had made for them. They were weeping over her. And you know, the work that Dorcas did, that opened doors. It allowed people to have good communication and good relationships uh, with the disciples, with those who were gathered there in the church. And as she was addressing some of their physical needs, she was able to help address their spiritual needs. You remember her faith is used as an example, and by the power of God, she was raised from the dead and was able to continue serving with the brethren there for a time. And then consider in John chapter 9 the blind man that Jesus healed. We have precious little written in Scripture about this man, But we know that after Jesus healed him, the Jewish leaders were upset. They brought in this man who was blind from birth and said, Who is it that healed you? And the blind man said, 
it was Jesus who healed me. And they asked him again whether these things were so, whether he was blind from birth, whether Jesus had healed him. And that was his only message. That was the only sharing of the gospel that he did. But it was so powerful to say, yes, it was Jesus who healed me. I was blind before, and now I can see. The way I heard one preacher say it, if you know enough to have obeyed the gospel, to have committed your life to Christ, you know enough to share with someone your story. Tell them why you made that decision. Tell them why you felt that need to put on Christ. Tell them why you felt that need to be obedient to the gospel call. And that is a great beginning point so that you can grow into a soul winner. And then just one additional point here because I know it's hard and people do get scared of evangelism. Do you know how you become great at evangelism? You have to first be willing to be poor at evangelism. And it's true with any talent. It's true with any skill. You look at people who are amazing basketball players today. They started really bad at basketball. You look at people who are great musicians today. They started not knowing how to play that instrument. You have to be willing to be bad in order to grow. So make the effort, yes, even a poor one, so that you can grow to be what God has called you to be. Our design is that we would teach others remembering God's plan for human agency, remembering his will that we would carry this message into all the world, and remembering that he has fully equipped us for the task that is before us. God wouldn't give us a job and then not prepare us for it. You know, you don't have to originate doctrine. You don't have to think up really smart things to say. He's already given us what to say. He's given us his word in the Bible. And you remember the same charge that Paul was giving to Timothy, the same things you have heard from me were only to communicate the truth. And that's something that every one of us is able to do if we're willing. That's what it takes, willingness. And you remember, responsibility is on both sides here. And so when we're teaching future generations, we have to make sure we have that as an end goal in mind, that the word of the Lord would not end with us, that those who are coming up would hear the truth, would live it faithfully, and then would go forward and teach others. We have to facilitate that in every way that we can. Uh, now, as we move toward the wrap-up, let me mention one more scripture here. Revelation 14:13. Let's look at this together. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. This is one of my very favorite scriptures to consider on this topic. You know, we started out talking about the church of tomorrow and where the kingdom of God might be 40, 60, or 100 years from now. Let's think about that as we read these words. Revelation 14:13. This, of course, is part of John's vision that's recorded here. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now, if we took the time to ask each one that's gathered here, we could all share stories about those individuals who had an impact on our life and on our faith. Maybe it was our parent, maybe it was our Bible class teacher, maybe it was a preacher or a mentor, someone that we looked up to who helped to instill in us a love for the faith. Now, we're not going to take the time to ask each one, but let me tell you about a few people from my life. When I was very young in the church, my Bible class teacher was Fran Robinson. But I'll tell you, no one in the church called her Fran Robinson. She was Granny Fran. She was everyone's granny. That's how she was known. And apart from learning at home, the very first impact that God's Word had on me was through Granny Fran. Some of the best-known and most-loved Bible stories, I can still hear her voice saying those things to me. 
And although she has long passed from this life into her reward, her work continues through me. You know, this phrase here that we read, Revelation 14, 13, they rest from their labors and their works follow them. She had an impact on me and countless other young people. She's resting from her labors now, but her works follow her. Her works continue. And as I continued to grow up, as I reached middle school and high school years, one of my Bible class teachers was a man named Harold Sneed. Uh, Now, let me tell you a little bit about Harold Sneed because he was a giant, (laughs) not just a a spiritual giant, but he he was a very tall man. He must have been very near to seven feet. I looked up to him, not just because of his height, but because of his character. He traveled the country preaching the truth of God's word. He even had opportunity to go overseas a few times. And one thing that was so impressive to me is that this well-known speaker who would travel all over preaching God's word would also teach a small Bible class in the back corner of the church building where we met there in Trenton, Texas. And he taught me and my brother through our Bible classes, and he showed us what it was to faithfully apply God's word to your life. To understand that this has meaning, yes, for the world, but this has meaning for me. And this is a big part of how we commit the faith to ourselves personally. Uh, Then as I continued through years after high school, I went to the Southwest School of Bible Studies. One of my instructors there, Don Walker, uh, he's now passed away as well. But during my time there at the school, he instilled in me a love for studying God's word and memorizing God's word to make points per chapter, and to apply the scriptures so that we're able to see the design that God has for us, to glorify him by living out what he has revealed to us. Now, these are just three examples, and I could give you so many more, but Granny Fran, Harold Sneed, and Don Walker, although they've all passed from this life now, their work continues. Now, here's the kicker. In 20 or 40 or 60 years, Who in the church is going to talk about you? Who in the church is going to mention your name and say, they were there for me? They made sure that I was taught God's word, that I heard the truth. They stayed on me to see that I was living it faithfully and gave me opportunities to serve. And they helped me in the way so that I could teach others, so that I could pass it on, so that I could continue this great work that God has given us to do. As we consider the future Christian home, We know that God's word has to be a part of it. Uh, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, right? We need the truth. And so we must teach future generations. Future generations need to hear the truth, need to live it faithfully, and need to teach others. We have a great enemy in the world, but we have a far greater God, one who has fully equipped us for the task that he has given us. The question is, will you play a part in the church of tomorrow? Or are you going to sit by and watch these things from the sidelines as a Christian in name only. Let that never be said of us. If you have the need to respond to the Lord's invitation tonight, we hope that you would do that to make your life right with him. If you've never obeyed the gospel, that means putting on Christ in baptism, to come in contact with that uh, soul-changing blood, that we would be cleansed from our sins and begin the work. And if you're a Christian who's wandered back into the ways of the world, God is rich in mercy, he longs to forgive, and we long to work alongside you. We invite you to come tonight as together we stand and sing.